scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy and infinite word. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 90, 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if, he lose, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is of God over one sin who repents. Amen. Dear people of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we as the body of Christ are involved in this marvelous work of the Great Commission given by the mouth of our very Lord Jesus Christ. As we know, it has the objective of discipling believers of all nations in order of course, to achieve this glorious goal, several, several conditions are necessary, such as, for example, and mainly God's blessing in the process, a commitment to the faithful preaching of the Word, the main means of grace, the willingness to send preacher and the willingness to be sent to the mission field. Even then, obedience to our Lord's calling for this work of missions involves risks and, of course, hard work. It can certainly become a difficult and even at times tiresome task. Yet the Lord does not leave His church helpless or demotivated. In the passage we just read, the Lord reveals to us an additional aspect that the people of God should never forget. As we serve in the work of missions, we are called also 
to work for the Lord, reaching out the lost with joy. This is the theme that we want to explore this morning, experiencing joy in rescuing the lost. And uh, we're going to deal with this theme through, or, yeah, through three points. The first one, complaining, we're going to see, gets in the way. Number two, the Lord is going to share some very familiar stories related to joy. Number three, he's going to make an invitation to rejoice just like the Father does in heaven when someone is found. So let's start with our first point. In verse 1 we read, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What we see here, dear friends, is the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, reacting to Jesus' attitude towards tax collectors and sinners. As you might recall, the tax collectors were considered traitors by the Jewish people because they would not only collect taxes from them on behalf of the Romans, but they would also take some sort of fee for their services. This, of course, was not perceived as a godly action. In fact, we read in John 3, verses 12 through 13, that John the Baptist called them not to take more money than what they had to. Sadly, if I think if not most of, if not all of them, most practiced this and clearly were breaking the law. On the other hand, we have this group of people that in this text are identified as sinners. It is not very clear who they were exactly. Perhaps they were apostate Jews. That is, people that just left Judaism and started living in an ungodly way. Or it was just uh, Jewish people that lived in open rebellion towards God and His law. Whatever the case, what's important here is that these people were guilty. These people were covenant breakers. Their actions showed their sin. Here it is important, however, for us to make a pause and ask ourselves this important question. Were the Pharisees and the scribes wrong in thinking that it was not a very good idea for Jesus to hang out with traitors and open sinners? It is important that we think deeply about this question because there's some people in culture and even in Christian churches thinking that the issue in this story has to do with the Pharisees and the scribes' lack of willingness to have fellowship with other kinds of people. In my opinion, I don't think they were wrong in considering, considering 
or in thinking that the people of God should not seek the company of bad people. By the information given in these two verses, I don't see how we can blame the Pharisees and the scribes for their first reaction. In fact, the scriptures teach precisely that. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man, and blessed means happy. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the godly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So, what is really the issue here? Why does Jesus rebukes them, rebuke them with his parables later? I believe the answer is in the context the previous verses give to us in chapter 14. Notice verses 25 through 34. Jesus speaks to the multitudes and speaks of the great cost of discipleship. In verse 33, the for instance, he says, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Meaning that true discipleship, or in other words, being a true disciple of Jesus, or a true disciple of Jesus, cannot have any higher or more important commitments than Jesus himself. Jesus has to be his Lord and God above anything else. Later on in verses 34 and 35, the Lord teaches by means of an illustration that speaks about salt, that someone who rejects him as the Messiah, as the Lord, is like salt with no flavor. The implication is that such class of salt is useless and a waste that needs to be thrown away just like those who are unwilling to be Jesus' disciples. So what we're seeing here, dear friends, is that right before chapter 15, the Lord was confronting the multitudes, calling them to submission, calling them to discipleship. And what happens next? Chapter 15 starts with the word, Then. In other words, after such a strong and intolerant calling to discipleship made by Jesus Christ in chapter 14, the tax collectors and the sinners are drawn near to Jesus. We're not told that they had repented. Uh, uh, we don't know that. We don't know if they believed right away. But that little word, then, in the beginning of chapter 15, shows the connection between Jesus previous preaching on his exclusive lordship and their drawing near. These lost sinners and tax collectors, though guilty, are responding to Jesus' gospel. So I think it is safe to say that the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes complaining does not consist in the fact that they were being unloving when they found it inappropriate for a Jew to have fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, they were right in thinking that tax collectors and sinners were guilty of breaking the law and did not deserve the grace of God. 
They were clearly not righteous in their works. So the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes is different. Their problem consisted, consisted in the way they understood Jesus and his preaching. Notice that they refer to him as this man, which in the Greek is more like an insulting this one. Note that they don't even ask Jesus why he was having fellowship with these tax collectors and sinners. For them, Jesus' attitude was enough to prove that he was, a, he was not the expected Messiah of Israel. For them, Jesus' fellowship with the sinners meant Jesus' total acceptance of the sinner's way of living, especially because uh, in the grammar here, we, it seems that it is trying to point, point out that Jesus has a re recurring attitude of having fellowship with this kind of people. In light of this, we really need to understand these two different kinds of fellowship and, of course, apply it to our own lives. The call to have fellowship with those who are open lawbreakers does not mean that we are called to rejoice in their evil actions which reflect a violation of God's law. We're not called to accept that which is bad and just call it good. Being a joyful Christian does not mean that we rejoice in that which is sinful. Nor does it mean that we're called to consider righteous that which is clearly not. In the name of love of mercy. On the contrary, we rejoice in that kind of fellowship that seeks to change that which is unclean, sinful, guilty. In order to be, again, changed, made new pure, forgiven, holy, guiltless, through Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, sitting at his feet as his disciples. This is the kind of fellowship that we are called to have. And of course, we are called to rejoice in that. So dear friends, don't fall in the trap. We're filled with this kind of temptation all around the world. We're being told that love and grace that not, does not consist. In other words, let me rephrase that. We have to know that love and grace does not consist in accepting as valid, for example, a kind of sexuality that the Lord finds sinful. Love and grace, for example, in the context of missions, does not mean that we have to accept as valid every cultural practice. I find this all the time in my talks with other missionaries. Oh, you're from a different culture, so you have to do everything differently. No. Culture reflects beliefs. Cultures have religion elements that are parts of these cultures. 
Of course, there are some areas where the Bible gives us some freedom. There are circumstances and forms. But essentially, there's no reason why we should or have to change the element, for example, of worship just because we are in a different culture. We have to be reverent because our Lord deserves our reverency. And that has to be expressed in every culture. How? Maybe that would, will change a little bit. But just because, for example, I'm Ecuadorian doesn't mean that I don't have to be reverent. So this idea that mission works needs to avoid a culture change is wrong. This idea that everything needs to be contextualized is wrong. There are some things, of course, that need to be, and the Word of God allows us to do that, but not everything. Other examples right now in Ecuador. Right now in Ecuador, laws in favor of abortion are being dealt with. And their argument is not hate. They don't come, and those who are in favor of abortion they don't come and speak in hateful ways they don't say we hate this baby and that's why we want to get rid of him no they use the love and mercy argument they will speak for example of how merciful we should be to the mother and her circumstances how much she deserves a better future. Or they would even argue saying, well, it is an act of love not to bring a child to this horrible world. That's how they argue. But we need to know better, dear friends. The prophet Isaiah reminds us of this very idea in his chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So, again, was the Pharisees' complaint valid? Well, yes and no. Yes, because they were right about being careful in having the wrong kind of fellowship with open, rebellious people. But at the end, once we take the whole context into consideration, their complaint wasn't valid because Jesus was doing something different to what they thought he was doing. He was not just hanging out with bad people and doing what they did. He was seeking to rescue those who were lost and that needed. And that very thought was the thought that Jesus wanted the Pharisees and scribes to have. And so moving on, we see now that the Lord offers to the audience, the Pharisees and the scribes, but also to the tax collectors and sinners who were together there, two parables. Actually, it's three, but we're going to deal only with the first two, which leads us to the second point. The Lord is going to speak of this familiar joy 
so that they could relate to it. We see that both parables have the same structure. Both characters lose something. Both make a pretty impressive effort to find what they had lost. And both rejoice when they find it. This joy is so big that they get to the point of celebrating with the whole community. Finally, Jesus applies both parables to this mixed audience. Now more in detail in the first parable, we see this picture that was, again, very familiar to the hearers. Throughout the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, God had referred, or God is referred as a shepherd that takes care of Israel, his sheep. So the Lord asks the religious leaders, what men of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? We can take this question again out of context. We might end up thinking that no one would put at risk 99 sheep in order to save just one. Actually, that, when I was reading this and preparing for this, I was thinking, well, I don't think I'll leave the 99. I want to have 99 safe and sound, and, well, it's just one lost. It's not much compared to 99. But again, we have to see the context here. Remember, an Israelite shepherd, in that context, in that time, even biblically, was precisely expected to protect all of his flock. Not only 99, but all of them. He was expected to go and seek for that lost sheep. And that is what this faithful shepherd does. Besides, it was the practice of the shepherds of the day to have partners who would help the shepherd to take care probably of those 99 until he finds the lost one. So the point the Lord is trying to make is you would do the same thing. If you lost a sheep, you would go after it until you find it. The second parable is similar. In this case, there's a woman that has 10 silver coins. Again, a common example to relate to for a hearer of the time. These coins were drachmas, uh, and a drachma was worth uh, usually a denarius, which was a day's salary, or the price of one sheep, which is very interesting. So the story com continues saying that she loses one coin, and what's her reaction? She lights a lamp, sweeps the house, searches carefully until she finds it. Now think about the houses at that time. Is they're not like the ones we have now. And if we drop a coin, maybe it wouldn't be so difficult to find. Many of the houses at that time didn't even have flat floors. It was just dirt. Maybe holes and who knows what else. So it was difficult. But she keeps going until she finds it. Again, the question is mentioned with the same aim in mind. Who wouldn't do this? 
Wouldn't you do the same? That's the point of the stories, is that for the shepherd in the first parable, that one sheep in danger became more important than 99 who were safe and sound. On the other hand, the second parable shows that one drachma or one coin becomes more important than the other nine for the woman. There's a principle, dear friends, behind these two stories that reminds us about this strange emotional aspect that makes the act of finding something that was lost a joyful celebration. A commentator says, the value of something because becomes heightened when it becomes lost. That is why the shepherd and this woman are so determined to seek until they find what they had lost. They're not just trying. They are doing it. Despite the several pounds that he later has to carry on his shoulders. And she's willing to turn her place upside down in order to get that coin. And so the teaching here is this. Jesus is showing his audience through these familiar stories that there's no place for complaining in this situation, situation like the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. But rather, it was a time for joyful celebration just like they would do in normal life when they find, or yeah, when they find something they lost. Tax collectors and sinners are lost, is what the Lord is saying. These who have heard my preaching and have come here after I have called them to my discipleship are lost. And he is drawing them near for repentance and renewal. I think all of us and little children as well can relate to this feeling when We've lost something. I have a little story. I remember my father had bought me a bike for Christmas. I was seven or years old. I used to ride that bike everywhere in the streets of Quito, close to our house. I also liked playing soccer very much, so I went to the park. I played. I had a very good time. And then I returned home just walking. I forgot all about the bike. I had spent hours in my house until I remembered, oh, where's my bike? I was very sad and even afraid about my father's reaction to such a loss. After all, it was a very special gift that he, has, he had given to me. But anyway, I went to the park. Eventually, I found the the bike. I felt so happy about my bike. And for some reason I thought my father was going to be very happy as well, but I got there and he didn't know about the fact that I had lost my bike. When I got there, he asked me if I had done my homework. And of course, I had not because I was looking for the bike. But for me, finding that bike was the most important thing at that time. I had to find it, and my homework was just secondary. 
so that's kind of the point that the Lord is trying to make. When there's something lost, something that belongs to us, we leave everything aside in order to find it and get it back. But there's something much more valuable that we all share as human beings. And that is that we all got lost in Adam. Because of the fall, every human being lost the holiness, the justice, and all, all, all those good things that the Lord gave to us. We lost that perfect relationship with God when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. This is why Jesus' work is so important. He came to reconcile us with God. He came to make us whole, holy, new again, give us justice. And so, this kind of work has to create joy in our hearts. Because those who were once lost are now being found by the initiative of God through the work of Jesus Christ. We've been sought for and we've been saved from sin and misery by the grace of God. The only valid response to that is to live as instruments of God's recovery plan for those He has chosen from eternity. That's the point the Lord is trying to place in our hearts. And finally, dear brothers and sisters, we are even further invited for this experience of joy by seeing and understanding what happens in heaven. Remember the Pharisees and the scribes' attitude. They were complaining about Jesus having fellowship with the sinners who, unlike them, are interested in his call to discipleship. These are tax collectors and sinners, yes. They are guilty, yes. But they are being drawn near by the Messiah. Unlike the religious leaders of Israel who refuse. It is in this context that the Lord tells the Pharisees and the scribes, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And at the end of the second parable, we read its conclusion, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. By speaking of heaven and angels and these parables, Jesus is saying that God himself rejoices when a lost sinner is found by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In heaven, where God dwells, there is much more joy when someone lost turns away from his sin and becomes a disciple of God than over 99 who need no repentance. Note the irony against the Pharisees and the scribes. The problem with them is that they did not see them themselves as those also in need of the gospel and in need of repentance and in need of becoming disciples of Jesus because they saw themselves as righteous. And since they did not see that need, they could not rejoice in Jesus' salvation either for them or for others. 
That's why they were rebuked and called to repentance. It is in the gospel, friends, that we find joy and happiness. Psalm 32 reminds us of this reality. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're not able to give that which we do not have, dear brothers and sisters. We cannot rejoice for others if we have not experienced that glorious reconciliation with God ourselves in faith in Jesus Christ. It is in this way that we all are invited to rejoice with the saving work of the Lord. First rejoicing for his glorious redemption work in our own lives so that we become those who join the heavenly places in joyful sound as we are used in God's mission for finding his lost sheep. So let me ask you, maybe there's any of you here being called by the Lord for the work of missions? Has he placed in your heart the desire to be an instrument for having the kind of fellowship that calls the lost to repentance? I want to encourage you, if you have this in your heart, know that the divine joy is promised to you. And this should be for all of us. We have to see ourselves as, let's say, missionaries in everything we do, at home, work, in every place we are at. We are witnesses of Jesus. There is divine joy promised to you. And we are called to imitate the character of our Lord who seeks and finds his own through the work of Jesus and through the application of that saving work through the Holy Spirit. So, brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless us all as we follow his steps and his example that seeks and finds for his own glory. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you because you have not left us alone. You have not left us in our misery. But you are a God that seeks and finds. Help us, O oh Lord, to be part of this great plan of redemption. Help us, Father, to be in continuous prayer for this work. Help us to distinguish, Father, the kind of fellowship that is acceptable to you and that which is not. Help us, O oh Lord, to always remember that you rejoice when there's repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.